All right, go ahead and open up to Deuteronomy chapter 5. Deuteronomy 5, and we're going to also look at Ezekiel 36. Specifically, we're going to look at Deuteronomy 5.29 and then Ezekiel 36, verses 26 and 27. I'm going to read a little bit more of that just for context's sake, and then we will pray and then we'll get to work. Deuteronomy 5, we'll start at verse 22, and I'm again reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. Deuteronomy 5:22. These words Yahweh spoke to all your assembly at the mountain from the midst of the fire of the cloud and of the dense gloom with a great voice, and he added no more. He wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. This is Moses speaking. Now it happened that when you heard the voice from the midst of the darkness, while the mountain was burning with fire, you came near to me, all the heads of your tribes and your elders. And you said, Behold, Yahweh our God has shown us his glory and his greatness. And we have heard his voice from the midst of the fire. We have seen today that God speaks with man, yet he lives. So now then, why should we die? For this great fire will consume us if we hear the voice of Yahweh our God any longer then we will die. For, though, for who is, is there, for who is there for, of all flesh who has heard the voice of the living God speaking from the midst of the fire as we have and lived? As for you, go near and hear all that Yahweh our God says. Then speak to us all that Yahweh our God speaks to you, and we will hear and do it. And Yahweh heard the voice of your words when you spoke to me. And Yahweh said to me, I have heard the voice of the words of this people which they have spoken to you. They have done well in all that they have spoken. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments all the days, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Flip to Ezekiel chapter 36. And we'll pick it up in verse 22. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord Yahweh, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you have come. I will prove the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am Yahweh, declares Lord Yahweh, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. And I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to do my judgments. Let's pray. Our Father in God, we thank you for the gift of your law and your gospel. We are grateful that your son Jesus died for our sins and rose for our justification. Help us to obey your word with hearts full of the Holy Spirit. Open our minds and hearts as we open up the scriptures. In Christ's name I pray, amen. We have finally come to the end and the final message of our Ten Commandments series. And what I want to do this evening is essentially pull together what we have done so far, wrap it up in a nice little gift, and put a bow on top. Um, Being the first Sunday of Advent, I thought that might be an apt metaphor. 
In our study of the Ten Words, we began with the message, Father and Son, and there I demonstrated that Father Yahweh initiated the covenant relationship with his son, Israel. Israel was enslaved, if you remember historically, enslaved in Egypt, unable to rescue themselves. In fact, they had grown numerous, the Bible tells us, and, and thus the Egyptians responded by saying, well, we need to put a stop to that. So they not only attempted to kill their children, the firstborn, uh, they, uh, of course, Moses was rescued from that, if you recall. Um, but not only did they do that, they made the work harder for them, not easier. They became harder uh, on their work. And in Egypt, of course, we know from the Bible is a great metaphor for sin and idolatry. Covenantal gnomism is the understanding that the law of God is set forth in the context of the covenant relationship. And that covenant relationship, we know, is marked by grace. Yahweh had told Israel, this is Exodus 20, verse 2, at the beginning of the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord, I am Yahweh, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So Yahweh had bludgeoned the Egyptian gods rather handedly, bringing along his son Israel into a new covenantal status. God, the Absolute One, transcends space and time. He enters into space and time. And as the all-powerful, self-existent One, He will, with a strong arm, rescue Israel because she is powerless to do so herself. So Yahweh is a father. Israel is a son. That is the context of the Ten Commandments. He is your God. He is their God. He is our God. Israel, rescued from slavery and death, has become a resurrected son, the first fruits of a new creation. And this, of course, prefigures what, what, what it is Christ does on our behalf as he becomes the unconquerable risen son and bringing the fullness of the new creation because of his death and resurrection. At any rate, what I have done in this series is ground this whole thing in the covenant of of grace. It is a covenant that is established in grace. And my reasoning for doing so and doing such a thing is to stave off the pesky pietists who would rather drive a wedge between the law and the gospel instead of seeing those two things as the co-laborers that they really are. What Father Yahweh does is tell his children that freedom is not found in exploring the dark crevices of the heart the follow-your-heart mentality we talked about last week. Rather, freedom is found in becoming like our dad. Freedom is becoming like dad, like Father Yahweh. That is what liberation really is. Um, sort of, I'll get into this in a minute, but back even 100 years ago, this liberation theology, this social gospel stuff that was going on 100 years ago, um, it was not freedom at all. It wasn't liberating at all because you're not liberated from the commands of God. You're liberated in the commands of God. Sort of an opposite way to think about it, but it's true. The law of God, it does hurt. No doubt, it hurts. But when we realize that Dad gave it so that we, could, we, we would walk as wise, unencumbered by sin children, suddenly our perspectives and attitudes change. Now, Sinai, I argued, Mount Sinai, that was the family meeting. That was the family meeting where Father Yahweh sits us down by His grace and urges us to stop 
dawdling around with foolishness. Yahweh rather pertinaciously insists on wisdom, maturation, sanctification. Think of the sit down, all right kids, family meeting, we need to talk. Things are not the way they should be uh, and we need to clarify a few of your expectations. This is how you're supposed to treat your sibling. (laughs) This is what you're expected to do when cleaning up dinner. Um, Your task is to take out the trash. You need to help feed the animals, and so on and so forth. Those are, that's sort of the sit-down talk that the Ten Commandments really was. This is how you act as my children. You don't steal, you don't murder, you don't covenant, you don't lust, you don't, you don't do these things. Uh, that's just not what my children do. And that's what the Ten Commandments is really all about. He wants, God wants, Yahweh wants his children to see that the victory is ours. He wants all of the inconsistencies to go away. That's what sanctification is by definition. It's just getting rid of the inconsistencies. He wants all of our hypocrisies, all of our jealousies, all of the things that we tend to give ourselves to because it's easier than obeying dad. He wants to get rid of those things, shelve them, burn them, cast them into the depths of the sea, Be done with those. Be sanctified. You have the victory of the cross in your life, Christian. So act like it. Act like that's true. He wants, God wants, the ten words to be obeyed from the heart and obeyed in all nations. So don't think of the Ten Commandments. Well, that was just the Old Testament thing. That was for Israel. No, it's for all nations. All nations are summoned to obey from the heart what God the Father tells us. Now, as, as I have argued in this series, if we're going to see sweeping change in our county, in our cities, in our churches, all across the nation, if we're going to see sweeping change, we're going to have to have a King Josiah moment. We're going to have to rediscover the book of the law, the book of the law, word of God. We're going to have to rediscover it. We're going to have to insist on its authority, and we're going to actually have to live in light of it. And that takes the guidance of the Holy Spirit. And frankly, that takes a whole lot of humility to do so. Now, this is true reformation, by the way. This is true reformation, a rediscovery of the authority of the Scriptures. We also need a revival, which is not simply a Southern Baptist scheduled meeting. I always laugh at those signs. Revival, Friday night, as if you can anticipate what God is going to do. Lord, we are scheduling a revival meeting, so you better show up. No, that's not, true revival does not show up on the calendar, according to our, we don't pencil that in. True revival means that we're going to need a fresh wind of the Holy Spirit, and we're going to need to trust in Him to lead us out of Egypt. So reformation according to the Word of God, revival according to the direction of the Holy Spirit. And I believe that the next great reformation and revival is going to come only if and when we demand those two things. A a, a reestablishment of the Scriptures and our submission to the Scriptures and a fresh fire that comes from the work of the Holy Spirit. And you simply cannot build something with nothing. You can't beat something with nothing. You can't build something with nothing. And since the law order of God is that something, we're going to have to go back to it. So my argument tonight is very simple. It's law and gospel. <laughs> we don't have to choose between the two. Um, we, we, we want law and gospel. And Yahweh, we cry out to you. 
After the second giving of the ten words in Deuteronomy 5, Moses reminds the second generation what it is that God had done in the first giving of the law. Okay, just a sort of geography lesson. We, we went over that this morning in our house. The geography lesson is this. Exodus happens in Mount Sinai, and that is in the wilderness, probably in the southern, sort of right across the Nile from Egypt, right? Um, that was the first generation. They got the law, and they're the ones that, you know, Moses broke the tablets, if you remember, because he was angry at them for the golden calf incident, because it accidentally just happened. You know, bad excuse. And after Exodus, you also have 40 years of wilderness wandering. And the book of Numbers takes you from Mount Sinai at the end of Exodus all the way to Kadesh Barnea, which is more northern part towards the promised land. And it also takes you to Moab, which is situated on the west, eastern side of the Dead Sea. Now, at that point, that's when Moses dies at the end of Deuteronomy. He's not allowed to go into the promised land. So he's, he's God essentially kills him. <laughs> I love you. You're dead. Um, he struck the rock. He wasn't supposed to. So God told him, you're not going into the promised land. So, you know, buckle up. It's going to be fun. <laughs> Pretty sure that's what God told him. Um, but Numbers takes us all the way there. And, of course, you have the Leviticus passages and stuff establishing the tabernacle and with the worship of God and so on and so forth. Um, but once you get to Moab, they're ready to go. Deuteronomy is a second, that's what it means, the second law. It's the second giving of the law to that next generation because a bunch of them had either died because of fire, fell into the ground, or God sent snakes to bite them. And if they didn't look upon the bronze serpent, they died. And uh, if my memory serves me correctly, 24,000 people died. Judgment. They didn't obey. So Deuteronomy is a, is a second giving of the law. So Yahweh, he spoke to the assembly at the mountain in the midst of fire, cloud, and dense gloom. That's verse 22. Israel came near to Yahweh, but they didn't get too close. Verse 23. In a fit of elation, Israel responded joyfully to Yahweh's glory and greatness. That's verse 24. The voice of Yahweh was so powerful that death seemed near. Verse 25. I love that terminology. We, we, we wanted to keep listening, but we thought we would die. So, you know, that's a, a sober analysis of the holiness of God. In fact, they ask in verse 26, has anyone heard Yahweh's voice and lived? Israel backed off, urging Moses to go near instead and listen to what Yahweh has to say. It's just too dangerous. I love, it's sort of like an ironic thing. Like, we'll die if we listen. Moses, you can take your chances. Go ahead. Now, if Moses does it, they can hear from him, and then they can do the commandments. That's verse 27 of Deuteronomy 5. Yahweh heard their request and was fine with it because they rightfully feared him. Verse 28. God then remarks in verse 29, and I don't want you to miss this, so make sure you're following along. In Deuteronomy 5:29, he says, Oh, that they had such a heart. That's our phrase there, by the way. Oh, that they had such a heart as this always, to fear me. And to keep all my commandments, that it might go well with them and with their descendants forever. The verse is conditional. If only Israel had a heart to fear Yahweh and keep his commandments so that it would go well with them and their descendants. God's commandments can be easily neglected. And when neglect happens, disaster follows. It doesn't go well. Note there in your Bible the word heart. That's a 
word we're going to come back to in Ezekiel, but the word heart is there. Some translations put it as mind, um, but it's really not, you, you shouldn't think mind, uh, heart. We're Westerners, we get things messed up, but you shouldn't think mind, you should think, you should think heart. The word for heart there, it actually refers, refers to the inner man. It refers to the center of the mind, the will, the emotions, and the knowledge. We don't have the mind up here and the heart down here, and they're disconnected. They're all centered in the heart. That's the biblical worldview. Everything's in the heart. The heart is the center of the human experience. And the heart directs what we think. It directs how we feel, what we decide, what we treasure, those things. Yahweh himself, who has always stressed the importance of having a circumcised heart, here admits that this is the one thing absolutely necessary in order to fulfill the terms and conditions of the law. The entire ordering of a society rests in the hearts of men. You want to know why the ordering around us is falling apart? Evil hearts equal immoral cultures. Godly hearts equal righteous cultures. Now flip to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36 is a very important passage in that it promises a renewal for the house of Israel sometime in the future. That is the future for them. Now along the same lines as Jeremiah 31, Ezekiel 36 gives us a bold prophecy. Yahweh will act, not for the sake of Israel, but for his own name's sake. His name is profaned among the nations, and this is intolerable. That's verse 22. Yahweh will set out to prove the holiness of his great name, because not only do the nations profane it, Israel has too. In proving his holiness among Israel, the nations will know who Yahweh is when he acts in the midst of Israel. Verse 23. Now, they were scattered because of sin, but Yahweh will bring his people together once again, bringing them back from covenantal exile. That's verse 24. Yahweh will baptize and anoint his people, sprinkling them with clean water, ridding them of uncleanness and idolatry. That's verse 25. And then we get to our text. Look at verse 26 and 27. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. There's our word again. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. Now, a couple of things to note. First, the problem Yahweh laments in Deuteronomy 5.29. Remember the, oh, that they would have a heart to, to fear me, keep my commandments. Oh, that they would have a heart. That problem... Yahweh laments is now resolved in Ezekiel 36. At least it's going to be resolved. Ezekiel is still another 500 years before the coming of Christ, but it's going to be resolved when Christ brings the gospel in tow. Oh, that they would have a heart. I'm going to give you a new heart. Who gives the new heart? Jesus Christ. Second, note, note the intrusiveness of what Yahweh intends to do here. Somewhat personal. He's giving a new heart and he's putting a new spirit within us. He's going to perform surgery. <laughs> he's going to take out the rocky heart of stone. That's what the sin-plagued heart is. It's a heart of stone. It's a, it's a rock. And he's going to put a new 
heart in its place. He's going to put a heart of flesh. That is, the heart that is weighed down by sin and transgression will be removed and replaced by a heart that beats in accordance to the wisdom and glory of God. Yahweh also promises that he will put his own spirit inside of us and he's going to cause, the Bible says, cause, literally make us to walk in his ways, the ways of God's law order. So what Ezekiel 36 foretells, the New Testament confirms. Jesus Christ, by virtue of his substitutionary death and resurrection, has poured out his spirit and given it to his church. The law was always powerless to give you obedience. Why is the law always powerless to give you obedience? Well, we're born in sin. And the law says, don't do that. Do this instead. What is it that drives someone towards obedience? It's the heart. But what if the heart is plagued and crippled by sin? It can't work. The, the law was never intended to resurrect us, to make us new again. That requires something different. The law was never there. It was never there to give you obedience. It couldn't grant you the thing that it demanded. Obedience comes from a new heart. But the demands of the law, they're always there. They're still there today. Those demands are still upon us, as we'll see shortly. But the good news of King Jesus, that, that's what the gospel is. The good news of King Jesus is that we can, through repentance and faith, both gifts of God, by the way, be restored to God. We can be restored to Him. The Holy Spirit, He is the one who regenerates our hearts. He is the one, and by the way, the Holy Spirit is a He, not an It. Talk and speak of Him as a person because He is. He is the one who regenerates our hearts. The Holy Spirit is the one who causes us and makes us to walk in the commandments of God. And He is the one who drives us and compels us from the heart to obey God. That's how Christian theology works. So to have a circumcised heart as a consequence of the gospel is to, and it means to, desire rightly, act soberly, feel appropriately, and obey righteously. I'll say it again. To have a circumcised heart, what the gospel gives you, when you repent and believe in Christ as your substitutionary sacrifice, you confess He is Lord, He's been risen from the dead, you are a born-again Christian. You are a new creation. And that means that that heart, you're going to desire rightly, you're going to act soberly, you are going to feel appropriately, and you're going to obey righteously. So you, no one should ever say, well, I don't feel like God loves me. You're not feeling appropriately. Because God's demonstrated His love for us while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us, Romans says. The demonstration's there. Your feelings need to get in line and follow the truth of God's Word. So obedience was always intended to stem from a circumcised heart. That's why with children you go to the heart of the matter. It's never just an um, external thing. We're dealing with matters of the heart too. Obedience 
always stems from a circumcised heart. The work of the Holy Spirit in the New Covenant is the ultimate circumcision. When the heart desires rightly, when the mind thinks properly, when the will chooses correctly, this is the joy of the Gospel. So let's explore this relationship between the law and the Gospel a bit more. The history of the church's relationship to the law of God is somewhat tenuous. Certainly the Ten Commandments have been held up as important for the church by men like Athanasius, Augustine, Calvin, and so on. But once the humanists had captured the 19th and 20th centuries here in the West, biblical law waned and the church opted instead to go along with the humanist program. Okay, just so you know, the nonsense we're all experiencing today with the COVID insanity didn't just happen. We've had hundreds of years of decadence. We've had hundreds of years of rebellion. We've adopted humanism as our religion in this nation, and now we are reaping those rewards. Without a doubt, Karl Marx's insidious influence on sympathetic followers has slowly seeped into the life of the church. While the church was building, busy building their gymnasiums for their gimmicky programs, the politicians were busy plundering and expanding their power. A hundred years ago, the church had to deal with liberal theologians who questioned the authority of the gospel and the word of God, and we also, they also had to deal a hundred years ago with social gospel proponents, basically baptized communism. And while both of those enemies of the church were incorrectly besmirching and trashing the law of God, we continued to let our guard down, and ever since then, the law has all but waned into a distant memory. You might recall the fight that Roy Moore had in Alabama about the Ten Commandments statues. And, I mean, <laughs> the Ten Commandments built Western civilization. And now we're saying we don't want that, we have a better way. And the statue's just a statue. At the end of the day, it's, that's still an external thing. We need the hearts and minds of men to be changed. That's ultimately what we're after. See, instead of living by grace in terms of the law, the church, we, the church, decided to just live by grace in terms of whatever was right in our own eyes. It's high time we recovered the law order of God. It is time for that King Josiah moment again. In order to get there, we simply have to set this issue of the law and the gospel straight. And we are yet again at a fateful watershed moment. Will the West repent of its autonomy and attempted usurpation of the law and throne of God? Or will we continue down the road of collectivism and humanism? They're, I just saw this today. They're looking at digital driver's licenses now. So you have it on your phone. With your vaccine passport and all the other garbage. It, this is all totalitarian control. We don't even need a driver's license. But that's, we're, on, we're, we're there. That's what we face today. Is it going to be Yahweh or Marx? Will it be Christ or chaos? Will it be biblical law and, or, or, or law in accordance to the laws of men? The commandments of God demonstrate three important things, and these three things are why I believe they are significant today. First, the Ten Commandments demonstrate for, for us who it is God wants us to be. Who it is God wants us to be. 
Because the heart is central, Father Yahweh wants us to be like His Son, Jesus, the perfect man who, though fully God, still exemplified what it means to be a whole man put together with a rightly ordered heart. Who does God want us to be? People who judge rightly, people who serve faithfully, people who give generously, people who obey, who fear God and then keep His commandments. It's interesting, the same thing Deuteronomy 5 talks about. Oh, that they would have this heart to, to, to fear me, to keep my commandments. Same thing at the end of Ecclesiastes. Solomon finally gets there. This is the end of, of the matter. Fear God and keep His commandments. Second, the commandments demonstrate not only who it is God wants us to be, but how it is God wants us to live. It's been asked, how then shall we live? Great book title. And this is without a doubt one of the more pressing questions of our time. How should we live? Well, the answer is like Jesus, right? We should live like Jesus, who obeyed our Father's laws, who expended his life in order to redeem the world, and who gave us the Holy Spirit in order to live righteously and justly. God wants us to live in accordance to the patterns set forth in Scripture. And third, the commandments demonstrate not just who it is God wants us to be, not just how it is God wants us to live, but where it is God wants us to go. Jesus Christ came, lived a perfect life, died a covenantally bound death of judgment, our judgment, and was raised into impeccable glory. Jesus desires that we go where he goes, that is, into the world with the power of the gospel and the pattern of the law of God. Jesus wants us to go into the world with the power of the gospel and the pattern of the law of God. The lie of the world is that there isn't freedom without autonomous revolution and that there isn't satisfaction without uninhibited self-indulgence. That is the lie of the world that we face today. The lie of the world is that there isn't freedom without autonomous revolution. The bourgeoisie, the proletariat, the language of Marx, right? There's no, there's no freedom unless we have totalitarian central control. And the other lie is that there, there really isn't satisfaction and joy and happiness and true pleasure without uninhibited self-indulgence. You need to feel the way you want to feel and no one can judge you. It's your truth. Speak your truth. Live your truth. That's the lie of the world. So our preaching and teaching, our living and doing, must have a correct understanding of the relationship between the law and the gospel so that the world can have a correct understanding of justice and righteousness. The gospel affirms what the law points to. God is first in all things. The gospel affirms what the law points to. God is absolutely first in all things. That's why the first commandment tells you what it tells you about putting God's before the face of Yahweh. Our neighbors are second. I'm telling, this is how you have a rightly ordered life. God is first in everything. Our neighbors are second. And guess what? The self is last. That is how Jesus lived. That is exactly how Jesus lived. The supremacy of Christ ought to be the foremost thing in our thinking and doing. In all of your decision making, all of your planning, all of your making money, spending money, saving money, giving away money, whatever it is, all of those things that we do ought to have the supremacy of Christ at the foremost of our thinking. 
And it also should have our service to our neighbors flowing out of that conviction of who God is in our lives. And then lastly, if there's anything else bringing up the rear, it's ourselves. What we want to do with the freedom that God has granted to us. What is the most difficult thing for all of us to do? Put ourselves last. But that is the model that Jesus gave us. God is first, our neighbor is second, we are last. J. Gresham Machen, I mentioned him a little bit ago, his book, What is Faith? He wrote this. this is, he wrote this in 1925, so we're getting close to 100 years ago. He said this, A new and more powerful proclamation of the law is perhaps the most pressing need of the hour. Men would have little difficulty with the gospel if they had only learned the lesson of the law. But aren't we supposed to just love everyone? Just love See, what he is arguing is that people can be tripped up by the gospel if it isn't couched inside the demands of the law. If, well, let me, let me he, go, he continues, let me finish this quote. He said, so it always is, a low view of the law always brings legalism in religion. A low view of the law. The Pharisees, Jesus criticized the Pharisees not because they cared about the law and not because they obeyed it perfectly. He criticized them because they had a low view of the law. He said, a high, this is Machen, a high view of the law makes a man a seeker after grace. Pray God, pray to God that a high view may again prevail. See, our witness in the world is nothing if all we do is go around telling people how much Jesus loves them. We've seen that happen in an abortion clinic standing there. God loves you. Jesus loves you. Eh. We need to tease that out a little bit. See, if that's our message, we, I think we could just go home. And here's why. The love of Jesus means absolutely nothing if the rescue that he brings doesn't find us standing on the precipice of disaster. Let me say it again. The love of Jesus means nothing if the rescue that his good news, that his love brings to us doesn't find us on the precipice of disaster. If you don't realize that God is holy and that we have sinned against him, the good news and the love of Christ means really nothing. It doesn't mean anything. How is it any different? Oprah loves me. That's what she says. She loves everybody. So you can claim that, right? Take it to the bank. If the holiness of God is not understood, and if the demands of the law are not understood, then the love of Jesus is indistinguishable from the cheap love and cheap grace we find every single day. The law of God is the only ordering of life that brings true freedom and contentment in the world to the world, which is why Jesus himself insisted on republishing it for his bride. When the scriptures are proclaimed, the word of God is being published in an illiterate world in desperate need of learning how to read, which means we must know it and proclaim it without apology. You don't have to apologize for the Israelites violently destroying the pagan Canaanites. 
oh, how could God have done that? He's a God of love. How did he command the Israelites to go and kill everyone in Canaan? It's very simple. God hates sin. It was judgment against the Canaanites, and it was godly and holy and just and righteous. You don't have to apologize for that. You don't have to apologize for any of the rough parts of the Bible that you might find. No sin was ever dislodged by singing sweet nothings to it. In our preaching of the law and gospel of God, we must insist on the fact that there is no fulfillment, there is no happiness or justice in a world that rejects God's law of liberty. You see, God's commandments are a cement for the society and culture. We want all the benefits today. We want all the benefits of the road without the asphalt and cement that's necessary to make it. That's what we want. We want the benefits of God's law, free market capitalism, property ownership, the right to self-defense, unmitigated travel, etc., without accountability to God's law. We want all the benefits without being accountable to the holy God who's behind it. And that is Western civilization right now. Our nation has spent the moral capital that it has been given. <laughs> it's been given all this moral capital and it's spent it completely, and it, it wants all the blessings of Christendom without Christ. Some, in discrediting the, uh, the, um, the application of the Ten Commandments, some simply want to be more righteous than God. They would rather have the commandments and traditions of men rather than the standard of God's law order, and for this we must repent. The law, said the Puritan Samuel Bolton, he said, it drives us to the gospel so that we may be declared just by God. And then the gospel sends us right back to the law to inquire, what is our duty as those now justified in Christ? And a, and a word of warning to you, by the way. The minute you start talking about the priority of the law of God in a culture, because that's what we need. That's really what we need right now. But the minute you start doing that, you will, without fail, raise the ire of a pietist who will call you a legalist. You want to know who the pietists are? Tell them, ask them, what, what, is your, what do you think the greatest need of our nation is right now? What do you think? We need Trump again. Nah, not the greatest need. Perhaps helpful to some degree, but not the greatest need. What is the greatest need? And if you say the law of God, and if they shun at that, you've found yourself a pietist, and you should have a next great next 10 minutes talking to them. See, you must remind him that the law and the love of God go together. And let me explain this real quick before we wrap up. We must love the Lord of the law and from there love the law of the Lord. Love and law go together. They go together and here's why. Law needs love to keep it from being legalistic Phariseeism. So keep, keep that. Law needs love to keep it from being legalism. But love needs law in order to see correctly. Love needs law in order to see correctly. To see correctly. Love is nothing but incoherent sentimentalism without the guidance of the law. And law is nothing but cold, heartless formalism without the warmth of love. It is also important to know that the gospel does not deliver us from the clutches of the law. It delivers us from the clutches of our moral inability to obey the law. We are delivered from the curse of lawlessness and sin. Not delivered, we are not delivered from the obligation of righteousness as demonstrated by the law. And what we are after, 
What we are after is an unmitigated zeal for God, an unquenchable thirst for personal holiness, and an unwavering commitment to national righteousness. Zeal for God, an unmitigated zeal for God, an unquenchable thirst for personal holiness. Are you repenting of your sin every single day? But not just that, because that's where the pietists stop. We need to have a, an unwavering commitment to national righteousness. We need everyone to be committed to these things. That's the Christian program of victory. Humanism is doomed to failure in history because Christ is risen and he is on his throne. As Gary North points out, he said that there's no kingdom victory by default. There's no kingdom victory by default if we mean that Christ's victory is just going to plop down in our lap someday. And that's what pessimillennialists, pietists, Christians think, oh, Jesus, hurry up, come, hurry, mop it up. It's getting bad, mop it up. We need you to hurry and rescue us. That's not the program of victory. It's not just going to plop down in our lap someday. No, men are born sinners. Humanism wins by default. However, the risen Christ has, in principle, defeated and disrupted this process. But in practice, it needs to be appended. It needs to be put into place. The victory is ours. We need to go and do something about it. Which is to say that victory comes by work. And work is only defined by the law word of God. We have learned something valuable tonight. The Holy Spirit causes us to walk in the ways of the Lord. If we are not walking in the commandments of the Lord, it is because we are not listening to the Holy Spirit. If we are not walking in the ways of God's statutes and judgments, can we really say that we're following His Holy Spirit? It seems like the majority of Christians in our country think that they're following the Holy Spirit because there's a fog machine on stage with cool lights. The Holy Spirit is present. The Shekinah glory is here. No, it's a fog machine. And it's annoying. If we're not walking in the ways of God's law and God's statutes and God's, can we really say that we're following the Holy Spirit? The Ten Commandments are tools for Christian reconstruction. What do they tell us? What do they tell us? Well, here's the best summary I can come up with. There, right? what, is, what, is, <laughs> what is God's ordering of life? First, God-fearing, a God-fearing culture is marked by common worship and service to the Lord. That's the commandments 1, 2, and 3. We are marked by a proper balance of work and rest. That's the fourth commandment. We respect and we honor marriage and the family. That's the fifth and the seventh commandment. We uh, appreciate and defend property and the right to ownership. That's commandments 8 and 10. We value and defend human life. That is commandment 6. And truth always wins the day in any and all relationships, that's commandment number nine. If Christianity is going to survive the impending destruction of Western civilization, we are going to have to understand these things. We're going to have to beat something with something better. You can't beat something with nothing. And frankly, this is going to require a lot of sacrifice, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. Just sort of a pastoral moment here. The days ahead are gloomy at best. Um, we know Christ will win the day, and this is just one of those little dips on the graph of history and timeline. But it's going to require sacrifice, friends. It's going to require a lot of blood, a lot of sweat, a lot of tears. It's going to require a whole lot of us 
to see the victory of Christ take place. And it's going to require a reprioritizing of our lives. Pulpits are going to have to be purged of the pietists. And churches are going to have to be active and not passive little statist pawns doing whatever the government tells them. It's going to require all of that. The victory is ours if we would only use the tools that God has given us. So remember, it's law and gospel. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you tonight for your word. I thank you for everything you've given us in it. This ordering of life that we can have that is ours in the gospel as we obey and we start from the heart. God, would you grant us self-government as the foundation of it all? Father, we thank you that you have been gracious to us and we can count the ways. Help us to remember that. Lord, help us to also remember that you have numbered our days. Lord, help us not to squander our time and our resources, but help us to focus and reprioritize. And may your Holy Spirit guide us into that. In Christ's name, amen.